0: Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest who wrote an excellent book on World War II. His name is Walt Larimore, and the title of the book is At First Light, a true World War II story of the hero, his bravery, an amazing, and an amazing horse. And it was just published um, in 2022. He had a co-author, Mike Yorkey, and there's it's available in different formats. Audiobook, Kindle, paperback, and right now on Amazon, it has 96 five star reviews and Walt has a bio in the back of the book. I'm just going to read part of it. He's always Walt Laramore. always had an interest in history and is the oldest son of Philip B. Larimore, Jr., the hero in at first light. As a writer, Walt is a prolific author and has been published 40 books, 30 medical textbook chapters and over 1000 articles in various journals and lay magazines. He's authored several bestsellers, garnered international and national writing awards, and his books have had sales of more than 750,000 units. In 2019, an early draft of At First Life, Mike received two international Page-Turner awards, awards, the finalist and patron's awards. He's been a doctor for 45 years and has been called one of America's best-known family physicians and is listed in the Best Doctors in America, Distinguished Physicians of America, Who's Who in Medicine and Healthcare, and who's who in America? And he also was granted by the Marquis Who's Who a lifetime achievement award and was listed in the Who's Who in the world in 2021. And he graduated from Louisiana State University with AOA honors. While his family medicine residency had an emphasis in sports medicine and was at the Duke University Medical Center, where he's named one of the top. 12 family medicine residents in the U.S. He's delivered more than 1,500 babies and still see patients part-time. His website is drwalt.com, so you can see that in the show notes. You can link to that, and I'll have a link to the book as well. It's a very well-put-together book, and he can talk about all the research he did on it. But again, the title is At First Light, A True World War II Story of the Hero, His Bravery, and an Amazing Horse, and it's Walter L. Larimore. So, Walter Larimore, welcome to the show.
1: William, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the privilege.
0: Awesome. So, for people who may not have heard your name or your book, this is a history book. You are a medical professional. Can you kind of talk about your background, your dad, and kind of what led you to put together at First Light?
1: Yeah, great question. I remember as a young kid, you know, I grew up in the '50s, and so all of us of that vintage watched uh, World War II movies and TV shows, and and in the backyard and out in the woods out back, my three brothers and I would replay some of the different wars and battles. We knew our dad had uh, been in World War II just because he had lost a leg in his office. There were shadow boxes of medals and there were pictures signed by generals, uh, Eisenhower, Young, True Scott, McCarr. So so we knew he'd been a hero, but he never would talk about it. Uh, even ask mom, mom, what, what went on? What do you know? And she's, she would just say, well, he didn't want to talk about it. And that was that that until their 45th wedding anniversary. And I guess he got nostalgic or began thinking back on on the past and knowing that there wasn't that much time left in the future. And so at their anniversary, my brothers and I were sitting around with dad, and I just asked him, you want to tell us any stories? And and William, I guess the timing was right. He began to tell stories. Uh, They poured out, and they continued to pour out every time we met with him. And quite frankly, I didn't believe a lot of them. They, they, they were literally unbelievable. But when he passed in 2003, uh, we were cleaning out his items and found a footlocker that had over 430 letters, had three history books that recounted the same stories that he, that he told. And so I began to put together his letters and those stories uh, into a, just a, kind of a family document. It had a lot of holes in it, so I began to do research to find out where he had been, when he had been there, uh, what the actual fighting was about. And William, that ended up being 16 years, almost 16 years of research uh, in facilities about eight uh, uh, states, United States, that where I went to different facilities, different museums, archives, and even overseas travel to Italy, France, and Germany to discover what ended up being some really remarkable stories and some secrets that had never been told before. It, it was a long, long journey of writing, rewriting, editing, rewriting, re-editing, but I'm just delighted on how it's been received so far.
0: Yeah, congratulations. And it's it's a very well put together book. It's very chronologically ordered. Maps, um, pictures too of your father and him with Eisenhower, very important to people as well. Can you kind of talk about his early life and where he's from and kind of what led him into the military. He was very young when he went in. Can you kind of talk about his yeah. early background?
1: He was, he was the only child born in 1925, growing up in Memphis. His mother was uh, a, a paralegal before there were paralegals. She was the executive for the, one of the top attorneys at the top firms in Memphis. And because of that, she often worked uh, 12, 14, 16 hour days, sometimes seven days a week. His dad was a conductor on a Pullman Railroad. Uh, he would serve either on the city of New Orleans train that ran from Memphis to Chicago or Memphis to New Orleans uh, or the Sunset Limited. And so his dad would often be gone days at a time. And Dad wasn't really good at school, and so he tended to get in trouble both at school and kind of became a bit of a juvenile delinquent, a recalcitrant, if you would. His mom tried uh, some finishing schools, which didn't help at all. She tried Sunday school and Vacation Bible School, and that didn't help help at all. And so finally, uh, my grandmom and granddad got exacerbated and frustrated, and so. Uh, in his ninth grade year, they sent him off to Gulf Coast Military Academy down in Gulfport, Mississippi. And William, that's where he found himself. Uh, he, he really took to the military training, to, to learning to fly, learning to sail, learning weapons, learning military strategy. He became an ROTC leader and, uh, and really sailed through military school. He finished military school about the time of Pearl Harbor. And so because of his ROTC training and his recommendations, uh, as a 17-year-old, uh, he was able to go to the Army's Officer Candidate School, OCS, at Fort Benning, and became what still is the youngest ever graduate of Officer Candidate School at Fort Benning. He was 17 years old, just a month shy of his 18th birthday. Usually you can't go to OCS unless you're a college graduate, and here he was, just barely a high school graduate, if you would. And then after that uh, OCS training, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army uh, in January of 1943. And he became the youngest officer in the US Army, Uh, trained in the US for about a year as a glider pilot, as a company commander. Uh, He got marksman badges. He was trained as a paratrooper, so really significant training and then finally was pulled out of the glider unit and sent overseas to land at Anzio in January of 1944, where he became what I believe is the youngest frontline officer in World War II. And through, through 15 months of fighting, one of the most decorated frontline officers of World War II.
0: Right, I mean, you have a list right there at the intro of the book of all of his decorations. It's almost like a full page. But he also, at that early age, he picked up a love for horses, too. So he was a, um, an addition to all of his other accomplishments, kind of outdoorsman co- accomplishments. He really knew horses. Can you kind of talk about how that uh, relationship with that animal started? Yeah. With him?
1: Well, it sort of went along with his outdoorsmanship. He wasn't good at school, but uh, because his, his, his father was a Pullman conductor, he could take the train from Memphis to northeast Arkansas, where his his mother's family was from. And he would spend Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every weekend uh, on on the farms. He learned to ride. He learned to be a marksman. Uh, It was said when he was uh, eight years old that he could shoot a a corn kernel off of a fence post from 50 yards away in any position, uh, supine or kneeling or or standing. Uh, He learned outdoorsmanship. He learned how to camp. Uh, he learned how to set up camps, he learned how to hunt, he learned how to stalk people and hide from people. Uh, he went into boy scouting, uh, where he learned to swim and to be a lifeguard. In fact, uh, in the flood of, of 1934, uh, he and another boy actually swam across the Mississippi River, one of his best friends, Bill O'Bannon. And so in the middle of the flood, they swam across the Mississippi and then swam all the way, all the way back. And, and so that, all of that background uh led him to develop an interest in in horses and and they lived uh, where he grew up the house wasn't far from the stables where the the draft horses that pulled the trolleys uh, around downtown Memphis were were kept and so he would spend uh, afternoons after school before his mom got home uh, at this stable learning to care for horses and the stableman there said that he had a a second nature with horses. He was a horse whisperer before horse whispers were were popular. He could hear them. They could hear him. He could understand them. They could understand him. And so the stableman gave him a lot of responsibility early on with horses. And that sort of culminated on his ninth birthday when the Lipizzan Stallions came from Austria, from Vienna, Austria, to do a show at the the great Southern Coliseum there in Memphis. And so dad went and spent a day with the Lipizzans, working with the stableman there, uh, and actually even as a as a kid, one of the one of the he thought stablemen let him actually sit on a Lipizzan. Which, in fact, if if you're being trained as a writer, what they call a writer, R-E-I-T-E-R, of the Lipizzans, you don't even get on a Lipizzan until you're six or eight years of your training, and so this uh, quote unquote stableman uh, let Dad get on that Lipizzan, and it 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 just changed his view of equestrianism uh, that night at his birthday celebration at the at the show uh, he found out that that quote-unquote stableman was actually one of the lead riders and he brought one of the most highly trained of the stallions out to do all of the the they call it the high school maneuvers where they would jump and and, and hop on, on legs and at the end of that performance that that um wonderful man brought that horse over and and saluted dad and saying happy birthday to him. And that just led to not only experiences growing up and not only experiences during training, when he was being trained at Alliance air base, he got exposed to draft horses and draft competition. Uh, Once he was in the war, he was exposed to dressage training in Naples. Uh, His horse experiences allowed him to introduce mules on to Anzio, he was the platoon leader of an ammunition and pioneer, an a and platoon, which was working the front line, working in no man's land, very, very dangerous, working all night. And so he trained some mules to help carry supplies up front. Uh, that same training uh, went into the Vosges Mountains in that horrible, horrible 1944, 1945 winter, perhaps the worst winter in the history of Europe, At the time, once again, got the mules involved. So horse story after horse story throughout the book that sort of concludes, if you would, with uh, him being sent on a secret mission to find the Lipizzans
0: that had been sequestered by Hitler to become the perfect horse. Yeah, it's incredible. Like the horse is like all the way through. And like it was an interesting story of his friends. Like he started to, you use the term dressage in the book about his relationship with his fellow troops too, which I thought was interesting. Uh,
1: yeah, it's almost like he he, he had a, a variety of equestrian experiences with war horses, but he also saw his men as war horses, as these incredibly well-trained, incredibly loyal men sacrificing their life for freedom and liberty. And it, it was interesting, I, I you know, William, I had always heard of the, of the greatest generation. I think I probably wrote that off like many people my age, but studying the sacrifices and the suffering that these men went through, over 2 million men who fought in the European theater of operations, about a quarter of them became casualties, almost 400,000. Uh, and yet, although they went over there to fight for liberty and to be John Wayne and to be heroes, very quickly, at least on the front lines, they were exposed to the horrible conditions of war. In Anzio, it was the equivalent of World War I trench warfare. Ice, snow, uh, you couldn't stick your head up without the possibility of it being shot off. The entire Anzio beachhead was within range of the guns, the German guns and the shelling went on 24-7. The bombing went on 24-7. It was just horrible. Very quickly, these men developed a loyalty for each other, to protect each other, uh, to fight with each other, and to get home. It was a, it was a real priority for them. But they were, uh, I think, the greatest generation.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Anzio was a very dicey beachhead just south of Rome, too. So, this is an 18-year-old today. He would be considered like a kid, an adult over a whole platoon, right? Over 50 men, at least initially, these kind of uh, NCOs and grunts, right? Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, he was by far the
1: youngest. <laughs> he he was the young man, if you would. Uh, and yet he was wise enough to have been introduced by his uh, battalion leader, by his best friend. He had gone through uh, OCS with, uh, with and met another man, uh, Ross Calvert. They became Best friends, and they ended up serving together throughout virtually the entire war. Maintained their friendship after the war, but but Ross really introduced him as a as a very young man to these these uh, veterans. Most of his platoon had actually been uh, with the Third Infantry Division and the 30th Infantry Regiment since they had their first D-Day in Morocco. I, I interview people all the time, and I'll often ask them what. What does D-Day mean to you? And they'll say, well, that obviously that means Normandy. But I've met almost nobody, maybe a couple, who know that the the guys on the Southern Front had, well, at least the 3rd Battalion of the thirty Infantry Infantry Regiment had 7 D-Days, and the 3rd Infantry Division had 5 D-Days. The Northern Front had the Battle of the Bulge. We've all heard of that. Almost nobody knows that the Southern Front had two Battle of the Bulges, the northern front had the Hertgen Forest, which was a horrific battle during the winter uh, of 44-45, but arguably a much worse forest fu- uh, fight was in the Vosges Mountains in that same time. And the Battle of the Bulge, although if we'd have lost it, it would have been a terrific, horrible loss, but the Battle of the Colmar Pocket and the Battle of the Maison Rouge Bridge arguably Far worse, And had we lost that, William, I, there are historians who say we would have lost the war. We would have lost the Eisenhower's pincher move. And yet by hanging on by a thread, despite some terrible leadership decisions, the grunts in the field uh, fought off a, a single battalion, well, actually two battalions of Americans fought off between three and five divisions, panzer divisions in this horrific battle. And so this story is a lot more than just a single man or a single platoon. It's the story of what I call the forgotten front of World War II, which is that Southern European front. Terrific battles.
0: Right. Amazing. And the bodges, I think you wrote in the book, had never been conquered. It's, it has like a battle history of uh, never falling. So that, as another kind of indicator of how devastating it was. Um, You're
1: you're absolutely right. The Vosges Mountains, there were six major army campaigns throughout history, and not one of them prior to World War II did the invading army stand a chance because the mountains were very rugged, uh, filled with swamps and thick forests, and you just could not beat an enemy that was dug in. Well, here comes the, you know, the 7th Army up through France after their, their fifth D-Day in southern France, August 15th in 1944. They're racing up France, chasing the German 19th Army. They they almost outrun their supply lines. And then when they get towards the winter, it, winter begins to set in. They know the Germans are dug into the Vosges Mountains. And they develop, Truscott develops a battle plan, and the men exercise it day by day by day, terrific casualties, terrific losses, and they become the first army in history to defeat an enemy in the Vosges Mountains. And yet they, I think one of the big differences in this greatest generation was that these young men, in Dad's case, this teenager, did not see themselves as conquerors. They did not see themselves as overthrowing the other army, but rather they saw themselves as liberators. They wanted to liberate people who had lost their freedom, who had lost their liberty. And to that end, they were successful, William.
0: Right, and they were welcomed on the way. There's many vignettes in your book about how warm the locals, whether Italians or French were to them. And so there was was kind of a symbiotic relation. There's like little pauses in the wars where, your dad was like talking to an Italian family or the French are helping him out or feeding them. So I thought that was interesting too. So they didn't see them, but he was wounded. I mean, fee high fever shot in the arm really banged up too. Can you talk about uh, what happened when he went to, like, a lot of people may know the name Audie Murphy, but maybe yeah. you can talk about uh, him and, and your dad.
1: Yeah. Uh, said to be the most decorated uh, of uh, the frontline soldiers in World War II had every major medal of valor. Uh, Dad actually had every major medal except the Medal of Honor. But they they met. Uh, Dad was uh, awarded seven Purple Hearts. He turned down three of them because he did not feel they were worthy of the Purple Heart. The the first one he turned down, William, was actually when he got malaria in Anzio uh, as the thaw was as they were coming out of winter as this, all of these swamps that had been flooded uh, by Hitler, he, he, he knew, Hitler and Mussolini, they knew that if they uh, damaged the dams uh, and flooded this, this land that had been reclaimed, that the mosquitoes, when they came out, would, uh, the malaria would just devastate uh, the, the U.S. Army or the Allies. And so dad actually caught malaria, and that was his first hospitalization. Uh, his first day in the hospital, he's burning up with 105-degree fever. And this soldier walks around and throws a purple heart on every bed. In other words, if you were in the hospital, you got a purple heart. And dad said, nope, not me. I'm not accepting it for malaria. In fact, after only two days in the hospital, he sort of went AWOL, if you would, from the hospital and said, I'm going back to my guys. I'm going back to my men. A real side side. Uh, bunny trailer that just real quick William is that because uh, the the axis controlled Southeast Asia they controlled all of the medication the quinine that was used to treat malaria So Mussolini was convinced that by flooding these fields by, exercising biologic warfare that he could defeat the army and Hitler could defeat the army just with malaria. But fortunately there was an experimental drug in the U S called quinacrine, and that came over and actually was, dad took it. It it saved countless lives from malaria. But beyond that, he had six other times that he was wounded. Um, The second most serious of those was a, um, a leg wound that occurred during the Vosges mountains he was uh, he and one of his men were taking um, uh, ammunition and supplies into a, a, a group of Raiders uh, it turns out they got surrounded by uh, by an elite German infantry uh, division and at the uh, very last second almost when it was uh, they were to be overrun he was shot in the leg and was uh, evacuated, went to a hospital in southern France and in the cot next to him in the officer's ward was this young man from Texas Audie Murphy. and so they met, became friends, they uh, had a very similar metal count at at that point, very similar wounds and they were treated by the same nurse they, they called her pricey but uh, nurse price uh, and and Audie began to develop a relationship Audie Murphy actually uh, uh, proposed to her at the hospital. She turned him down. Uh, he later proposed to her again. She turned him down again. And then he they, they never did get married, although they did stay in touch after the war. But Dad interacted with Audie Murphy, both in the hospital and then uh, during the Battle of the Comar Pocket. He also interacted with Maurice Footsey Britt. Maurice Britt uh, was the first U.S. Army soldier to win all of the medals of uh, the medals of valor he had the um, the medal of honor the the legion of merit the silver star and the bronze star uh only to be outdone by audie murphy but uh maurice fritz was the company commander for company l love company of the third battalion of the 30 30th infantry regiment and so dad was a second lieutenant at 18 a first lieutenant at 19 a captain at 20, and then he took over Love Company and became one of the youngest, if not the youngest, frontline company commanders of World War II when he took over Love Company during the Colmar Pocket.
0: So how many troops did he have under his command at the at the last part? I don't even know how, how big a company is.
1: Yeah, well, a, 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 a company could be uh, anywhere from 100 to 180 men. I don't know the exact number of the time that he took over. It was right in the middle of the Comar pocket. He was still serving as the um, commander for the A&P platoon. And then the, uh, the young lieutenant that was the, the company commander for L Company uh, was wounded, had to be evacuated during the battle right towards the end of the Comar pocket. And so he was, dad was put in as the company commander, interim company commander, but did such a good job of leading the men. That story is one of the, the sweeter stories. Uh, once again, almost everyone older than, than him. And, uh, and then he maintained that position of the company commander of L Company until just a month before the end of the war, when one of his uh, point platoons was surrounded by a division of Germans, And he had to go in and and save them, uh, which he did with the loss of only one man, but with the loss of his leg.
0: That was it. Yeah. So he unfortunately lost his leg. I think he was shot in the arm, too, at one point, like it went through, but didn't break a bone. So he was very close to the end and very interesting stories like he saw Churchill. And a lot of Americans don't know the whole drive from Anzio to the south of France and up the kind of... uh, I think it's the Loire Valley, but I mean that's a really interesting story that I think you cover really well. Can you kind of talk about him being in the water and how they kind of made their way? I think they had to join up with Patton, right, or Montgomery. I
1: can't remember. Um, no, no, Montgomery and Patton were both in the northern on the northern front, but there were there was the uh, allies coming up from Cassino and the Gustav Line that were coming towards Rome, and then the breakout from Anzio which was uh, in May of 1944. And, and our listeners and viewers need to remember that Anzio was completely surrounded by mountains. And those mountains were infested, inhabited, deeply dug in by Germans. And so a breakout was predicted to be a very costly uh, campaign. It was very well planned uh, in the, during the nights of the month before that Uh Three divisions were brought in under the secrecy of night. Supplies were brought in under the secrecy of night. This massive campaign uh, was initiated. And when the breakout began, the the, the the two pinchers, the one from Anzio and the one from, from Monte Cassino, both were heading up to Rome together. And they were actually sort of in a race to see who would get there first. Uh, uh, General Clark and, and the, the U.S. Uh, divisions under him wanted to be the first into Rome. And so they fought up. It was horrific fighting uh, to to work up and work up and work up uh, towards Rome. And then finally, the Germans abandoned Rome at the last minute. And so then in uh, June 4th and 5th of 1944, the Americans took Rome. There's great debate about who was the first in. Dad and his men said they were the first in. Other Regiment said they were the first in. I don't think history has settled that that question at all. But the the mistake they made, if you would, William, was that they liberated Rome on June 5th of 1944, and so headlines were being uh, uh, prepared for all over the United States. Massive headlines, big fonts, saying Rome has been liberated. Those headlines were going to run on June 6th and June 7th of 1944. Eric Severide, who was later a journalist with CBS News and CBS Evening News, was embedded with the 3rd Infantry Division. And he tells the story in his biography of how all all of the men were, all of the journalists were preparing their stories on June 5th. And the way it worked was that the journalists would have teletype Access, um, deep cable access across the Atlantic, one hour a day maximum. The other 23 hours a day were all for military use. So that night of June 6th, they were all preparing to teletype their stories that were going to burst across the headlines of America the next day. And a BBC journalist walked in and said, Boys, throw your papers away. Uh, The invasion of France has begun up in Normandy. And so they quickly became I mean, it was already the Forgotten Front, but now the first liberation of a, of a major capital in Europe became a, a page 14, a page 16 story. In fact, when I've interviewed pe- uh, people, I've asked them, what was the first uh, uh, capital liberated in World War II in Europe? People almost universally say, well, it was Paris. Well, Paris was liberated by the northern guys in August of of 1944, but very few people know the first city liberated was Rome on June 5th of 1944. So, so the, the guys kind of had the southern front guys kind of had a, a chip on their shoulder <laughs> that they didn't get get the P.R. My my take on that is that after uh, the Caserine Pass and after uh, when Patton came in, Patton was a P.R. hound. He loved embedding with journalists, taking them with him. He did that through Sicily. Uh, And then um, when he was taken away from the Southern Front and then later moved to the Northern Front, he, Bradley, and Montgomery were all PR hounds. They all had the press with them. They all had the press traveling with them day to day. The Southern Front generals didn't have that interest in the press. Their interest was fighting and winning a war. And so I think that contributed to what I call the forgotten Southern front. And my, my hope and prayers. this book will help resurrect and reinvigorate uh, that amazing front. Uh, the Northern guys, incredibly brave. Incre- their suffering and sacrifice was huge. But they fought for 336 days. On the Southern front, those guys fought for 930 Thirteen days. They That's had,
0: where it all started, right? It started in Morocco. It,
1: it all started, and in a way, it ended. You know, the the southern front guys fought across northern Africa into Sicily, into Italy, across southern France, in through Alsace of France. They crossed the Rhine River three times. The northern guys c- crossed it once. They raced through not only southern Germany but also into Austria. And so they fought on more fronts, more countries, had more medals of honor, more silver stars, more bronze stars by far than the Northern Front. They were equally important because that pincher mood that, that Eisenhower designed was critical to, to winning the war. But I, I, hope, I hope we can remember and recognize and shout out to the men and women that were on the Southern Front, the Forgotten Front.
0: And you do include biographies of some of the people you fought with, names that I hadn't heard of. So I really appreciated that at the end of the book. And it's very easy to follow where these battles are commencing through the maps that you have in the book as well. Um, Can you talk a little, the Lipizzaners are kind of a famous horse that you can see online. It's a big, beautiful white stallion and they kind of are able to kind of train them to do jumps and stuff like that. Can you talk about the secret uh, mission your dad had involving those?
1: Yeah. Towards the, towards the end of the war, Uh, rumors started coming out of Czechoslovakia about Hitler's program to develop a a royal breed, a a perfect breed. You know, he had his his sights set on the Aryan race, the quote-unquote perfect race, and he wanted to have the perfect horse, the perfect war horse for the perfect race. And so early, uh, even before World War II, he began to sequester onto specialized horse farms all of the royal breeds of Europe. So these were horses like the Berbers, the Andalusians, the Frisians, uh, Thoroughbreds, uh, and, and Lipizzans, the, the dancing horse uh, horses of Vienna, Austria. And so uh, there were a number of, of horse farms where these breeds were being developed as the breeding continued. Uh, he made his choice that he wanted to have the lipos on the, the beautiful white horses. They're, they're actually a gray, <laughs> they're born, they're, they're black and then they, they turn white and they kind of become gray, but the way their coats are, it looks a beautiful, beautiful white, but the way that the breeding program was going, uh, it was a very unethical and a potentially dangerous breeding program because brothers and sisters and mothers and, and fathers were all bred and so the Nazi vets who were really quite caring and quite good vets became, first of all, very upset about the breeding program. Second of all, very upset about the way POWs were used to keep the horses. And then third of all, because of the the uh, agreement between Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt, uh, the Russians were given the job of liberating Czechoslovakia. But... The concern the vets had were the rumors that because of the starvation in um, in Russia, that the Russian army was killing and cooking and eating anything in its path. And then on one fateful evening, there were uh, uh, it's a trailer. It's not clear whether there were 20 or 25 liposigns in the trailer, but the Russians captured it, killed all but one of the liposigns, skinned them, cooked them, and ate them. So this this a panic ensued in the horse farms uh, that these royal breeds were going to disappear. And so a message was sent uh, covertly through intelligence to the U.S. Army saying, please come save these horses. And so it wasn't clear if it was a true message or not. Let me give you a real example why. Dad's first three days on Anzio, the first night he worked all night on, the first night he took a, 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 a one of his men out. They were they were setting mines and the man made a mistake and right next to dad, he blew off his face. And then the the next day, dad, as they were walking back uh, just at dawn, one of his men was hit by an 88 a, a anti-aircraft uh, uh, armament that was shooting horizontal that literally cut his man in half right beside him. And then the third night uh, they, they, they were, uh, heading towards dawn, and two German soldiers in No Man's Land stood up, waved white flags, started yelling, Comrade, 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 which was the the the, the word they would use for surrender. And one of Dad's new men, an older enlisted man, started to stand up to, to 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 take the prisoners. And dad screamed at him, No, because the Germans were known to have these fake surrenders. And as soon as Dad's man stood, he was shot through the head by a German sniper. And then the two fake surrenders quickly went down and, and ran away. Uh, the Germans were known for, for booby-trapping even the bodies of, of Allied soldiers. Um, and, and so when this rumor came that the Nazis wanted the U.S. Army to come in and save these horses, there was great suspicion that there's nothing like it. And it was just an attack, even here at a month from the end of the war of of getting a company or a few platoons and then just wiping them out, just destroying them. So the decision was made to send in a, a a small Piper cub that was a reconnaissance plane uh, with a pilot and with a man who knew horses and they needed a volunteer to fly 200 miles into Czechoslovakia, land in the forest. Uh, The underground would meet them and then take them, The the Nazi one of the Nazi vets would meet him, take him to the farm to confirm that there were not only uh, these horses, particularly the but also POWs. And so, Dad was asked to do that. He volunteered. The conditions were pretty severe, William. He was told, You'll have no identification, neither you nor the pilot. You and the pilot are not basically to talk to each other. We don't want you to know who each other is in case you're caught and tortured Um, and uh, but you'll have no identification so if you're captured your mission will be disavowed you'll be considered AWOL if you're killed you'll be considered AWOL and there'll be no life insurance there'll be no benefits for your family or or your fiance or anybody and dad without even at least according to the records without even uh, thinking about it said I'll do that and the next morning before dawn they they took the Piper Club, they, they flew uh, almost 200 miles in Czechoslovakia, it was a cloudy day, which helped in the sense that it was easier for them to not be seen, but much harder to navigate. The, um, the fuel capacity of that plane was 180 to 200 miles. So they literally, William, they ran out of gas and they hadn't even found the airstrip. And so as they were gliding, dad saw the, the, the little clearing where the lanterns were set out, and then he guided the pilot down. And as a, because he had his glider wings, he knew gliding. He knew they'd be safe, so they landed. Uh, the Nazi vet came out, actually riding a Lipizzan, and also uh, he brought a, a thoroughbred uh, because he wanted the army soldier to be able to to ride a horse that wasn't quite as big or quite as feisty. And he didn't know Dad was a equestrian, but once they met, uh, they rode to the farm where Dad identified, indeed, the Lipizzans were there, and then uh, they they had a a little fun interaction. Uh, This guy's name was Captain Lessing, and they had a steeplechase uh, course. So Lessing let Dad ride the Lipizzan and then get back on the thoroughbred, and then they actually had a race through the steeplechase course, and Dad's story is that he won. I have no independent documentation of that, but his other stories were true, so I believe it, and then they got in the plane, flew back, and that Uh, information that the horses were there, that there were POWs there. That information went up to high command where it went to Patton. Uh, Remember that for the U.S. to enter Czechoslovakia was essentially a war crime. It was illegal. They could not do it because the Yalta Agreement specified that only the Russians would liberate Czechoslovakia. But nevertheless, Patton approved what was called Operation Cowboy, and a cavalry unit went in, uh, not without difficulty, that actually walked the Lipizzans and and a number of other royal uh, horses out of Czechoslovakia and and back into Germany and and actually probably uh, saved that, saved the Lipizzans.
0: Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And that's like a rich tradition, right? The Lipizzana tradition Hmm. associated with Austria-Hungary going back in time. Oh,
1: hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, later the, the Austrians were so grateful to the, Americans for saving the Lipizzans, that they actually sent, um, I believe it was eight Lipizzans to uh, Arlington uh, at Fort Meyer in Washington to be become a caisson platoon, to, to bury American heroes. Um, after the war, Dad was assigned to uh, Fort Meyer. The main reason he was assigned there was uh, because he had lost his leg and the the U.S. policy, the War Department policy at the time was if you were an enlisted person and you lost a limb, if you found a job in the Army, you could stay. They honored you. But if you were an officer and you lost a limb, you were no longer considered officer in gentleman material. In fact, in, in some of the leadership, you weren't even considered human. It was a very inhumane policy that said as soon as you were rehabilitated, you were kicked out. And Dad felt that that was unfair, unreasonable, inhuman. And so he put together a strategy with congressmen, with senators, with General Eisenhower, with President Truman, to actually fight that unfair policy. And so they brought him to Fort Myers so he could fight fight there, uh, that, the battle. He could communicate with Congress, he could communicate with high-level generals and go through this appeal of this horrible Policy. In fact, I, I remember the day, William, that I was in uh, College Park, Maryland, at the at the American at the U.S. Archives, and I found the actual transcript of that trial. And it, it, if any of our viewers have have ever watched the movie A Few Good Men, where the character of Tom Cruise is in a courtroom battle uh, with a character played by Jack Nicholson, it's this intense trial. And that's what this trial was. It, was. it was an ugly, intense trial. I won't go much into it because I don't want to ruin what the book has to say. But anyway, Dad there not only was the executive officer, but he's also a commander of a caisson platoon. And the caisson has six horses pulling the caisson that would have the coffin of the soldier being honored. And then there would be, if it was a colonel or above, there would be a horse behind the caisson. That was the empty saddle horse, the capsaicin horse with the boots turned around. And then there would be the horse that the executive officer would ride. And uh, all of those horses were the same color. They'd either be white or gray or, or bay, but all of the horses would be the same color. But the caisson, the six horses would have three riders, one on each horse on the left, one on each pair the the right horse of each pair would not have a rider and then there was the of course executive officer all four of those men now men and women but then all four of those men would have to tell the horses to move but they could not utter a vocalization and they could not be seen to move and so they had what was called a two leg lead where they might flick a, a thigh muscle or move a toe slightly but all of those had a particular meaning to those horses but dad only had one leg. So as far as I can tell, he was the first equestrian in the history of equestrianism that taught a horse to a one leg lead. It was really quite remarkable.
0: Interesting. And he had a lot, I mean, he was very young when the war was over, right? In 45, he had a incredible life even after that, representing, you know, fighting for rights for people who got disabled and yeah, things he, like that. And he he was a, a ma- in the
1: major at 22 and I'm told, you don't become a major typically until you're 30, 35, or or even older. So second lieutenant, uh, actually, out of OCS at 17, was commissioned a second lieutenant at 18 on his 18th birthday. Uh, first lieutenant at 19, captain at 20, and then a major at 22. It, it was just remarkable. remarkable what those men did and what they what they went through.
0: It really is. It's an incredible story. A great, very well-written book and put together book, too. So I commend Well,
1: that. I really I appreciate you saying that because it's a it's it's yes, a history book, but it's chock full of romance, it's chock through, full of these war horse stories, it's chock through with these legal this legal fight for amputees and, and what he went through as the discrimination that he went through as an amputee, not not just from other army officers, but from women. They, they, they typically loved men with a, a uniform and medals, but boy, when they found out he didn't have a leg, it was much more difficult. And I think one of the sweet part of the stories is, is how he developed uh, 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 horse therapy uh, in the hospital that he was in for other amputees. It was an amputee hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. And then how how the chaplains, the army chaplains, were wise enough to be able to to um counsel him and how he could overcome uh, overcome this you know being being an amputee uh in one of his letters that he wrote he actually talks about the um uh his self image being damaged his future was un- uncertain and he was talking to one of the chaplains about that and what he wrote uh, I, I it's one of my favorite quotes in the book I've got it if I could share it real quickly please
0: do Yes, please
1: do. So he, he was confessing these awkward feelings. And and this is what he wrote that the chaplain told him. He said, son, your wound will either make you a bitter person or a better person. It'll either harden your heart or it'll soften it. You'll either be a person changed for the worse or one who chases, chooses to make the world better. In my opinion, this this chaplain said, the worst disability in life isn't being disabled. It's being disabled with a bad attitude. The Germans smashed your leg, but don't let them shatter your heart, your talents, your gifts, your will, or your faith in God and the plan he has for you. The choice is up to you, but you need to make that choice. And and that for dad was a a real game changer to think, well, how do I be a better person? How do I change the world despite this terrible disability?
0: It's amazing. Yeah, he had an amazing life. And really, one of the other aspects of the books is all these letters that you went through, he's communicating with your be your grandma, your grandfather, sending letters. Back in the day, those missives were all important, you know, sending these letters. So you include those in the book to, uh, to great effect, I think, because it just shows the authenticity and what people were thinking at that time. But while we are at the 50-minute mark, where's the best place for people to get at First Light? What do you recommend?
1: Oh, well, any of the online sites have it a have it available in hardback. It's an audio book. Uh, the paperback will probably be out next year. Um, I, I love the narration. The, the the One of the best audio readers, narrators in America. He does Stephen King's books, does Vince Flynn's books. He's done the Bible. He's done all the classics. But What's George, his name? George, George, I forget his last name. I'm blanking on it. But okay. the, the narration on the audiobook is just spectacular. He does all the different characters uh, in a wonderful way. It helps bring the book to life. It, it, it is a history book, but it's written in a newer genre called narrative nonfiction or creative nonfiction, where it's written as I think you've indicated, much more like a novel, uh, chock full of, of conversation and shocks and twists in the plot, but very short chapters. And I think that's one of the reasons it's up again for an International Page-Turner Award. They've not okay. been announced, but it would be announced next month. But it's in the finalists for the best book, uh, nonfiction book, the best um, uh, uh, co-written book, the, the best book by a golden author, I guess I'm a golden author, and also for best audio book and best cover. So I, I'm delighted with the way, way it came out. And I really appreciate your feedback that you yeah, enjoyed yeah. that that page turning aspect.
0: Yeah, George guidal G-U-I-D-A-L-L. And also another aspect that I learned, I'm not a real like military weapons and equipment, but you really have that element in this book. You point out what the Germans were doing and kind of all the equipment that was involved. So you can kind of see what was going, you know, the world war two application of military. Yeah. yeah and, and, and for the military like man,
1: idea. the military man and woman, and the historian, there were 5,800 primary sources, uh, uh, over, over 750 citations, but I've, I've tried to make that where it's not a disturbing part of, of the book. And so a lot of the military language is pulled out of the text and put into into footnotes for the, those that want to know what a potato masher is and what a Sherman tank is and what the difference is in an M1 Garand and a, an M1 carbine and what the difference in a heavy machine gun and a light machine gun, et cetera, et cetera. That information is available. Uh, I've had a number of reviewers, uh, The reviews have been amazing how, how well reviewers have received it, but a number of them said, well, I read it first for the story, and then I went back later and, and I read the footnotes and reached an even deeper level of understanding of this, the, truly the greatest generation. And, and one qu- real quick thing, William, you mentioned that, you know, dad wrote 436 letters. And this book wouldn't exist without those letters. And one of my encouragement to our viewers and listeners would be, all of us do emails and we do text. But I hope this book will be a reminder that there's nothing quite like the written note, uh, something you take the time to handwrite and send to somebody. Uh, But especially for your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, to be able to leave behind a bit of your legacy in writing is uh, a lost art. And it's something that I hope more people will be encouraged to do because of this
0: book. Yeah, and it just shows that repository of his writing passed on into this book. Maybe something he didn't even expect was re-put up so other people like me can appreciate it. So it's very important. And you had a lot of military, big military names uh, wrote about how great the book was too. So some I of those couldn't believe it. I, I,
1: I the first person that reviewed it was David Petraeus, the former commander of Afghanistan, former director of the CIA. I don't know him, but a, 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 one of our technical advisors, who's a physician and an infantry person, sent it to him, and he contacted me. He said he read it in three days, and he wanted to know if I could, if I would accept his endorsement, and and he's he. In fact, his endorsement was on the front of the book, he said, "This story is extraordinary. Don't miss this remarkable book." But there's four four-star generals who endorsed it, including the first female Army four-star officer, uh, Air Force three-star and uh, two-star general. But then the the athletic legends, uh, Coach K, uh, Coach Sushesky, the head basketball coach at Duke, uh, also read the book in three days during during his last season, and. Uh, Uh, of coaching and endorsed it along. Joe Gibbs, uh, three times Super Bowl winner, three times NASCAR winner, gave it a beautiful endorsement. Dan Reeves, uh, who was a Super Bowl champion, uh, coach, and player. Uh, Dan read it on his deathbed. I didn't realize at the time that he was terminal, but uh, it was the last book he read and the last book he endorsed, and his endorsement uh, is there um, the the, the uh, Pat Williams who founded the Orlando Magic as uh, a World War II aficionado, several uh, editorialists uh, that, that endorsed the book, and then novelists, uh, best-selling New York Times novelists who endorsed it. And so as a first-time writer in this genre, I'm not a historian, I'm not a big famous writer, but to have that type of praise, I think allows people who don't know me from Adam to say, hey, this may be a, wor- a, a book worth worth picking up.
0: Good point. And I think that the uh, reviews on Amazon uh, are indicative of that. 96 five-star reviews right now, audiobook. And your website is drwalt.com. If people want to reach out to you or follow up with you, is that a good place to
1: send it? Absolutely. Dr. Walt, Dr. Walt, drwalt.com. Uh, they can sign up for an email. I send it every day. It's got health and book type stuff. comes out on a daily basis at, 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 at drwalt.com. And, yeah. and feel free to write me. I'd be glad to interact with uh, anybody who would. Um, I just am back from New Orleans, actually. William, the Military Writers Society of America gave the book a, a silver medal. And then as of today, it's up for another uh, eight major book awards. And so I hope that that will all facilitate um, more of us learning about and remembering uh, this Forgotten Front as we head towards Veterans Day. uh, And and then, of course, next year, Memorial Day. I hope that on those days when we're picnicking and barbecuing, Mm -hmm. that uh, we'll remember, we'll tell a story, uh, even a brief story, about uh, the men and women who preserved liberty uh, from fascism and totalitarianism. And even in these times of, of great political debate and divide, I hope there's one thing that we can agree upon. And there was a, a time when the world was on a precipice and uh, America fought for and saved freedom and liberty. And I hope we can always honor our men and women uh, who serve in uniform.
0: I hope so, too. Great discussion. Thanks so much for your time. Congratulations on the book and its awards. Full title again is At First Light, A True World War II Story of the Hero, His Bravery, and an Amazing Horse. The author again, full name is Walter L. Larimore. And I will put his website in the show notes so you can contact him there. Walt, thanks so much for your time. You're more than welcome.
1: Thanks for the privilege, Warren. All
0: right, right. great. Stay there, stay there.